Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a t-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your health care. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. Welcome to the Healthy Gut Podcast, the place where you can learn how to achieve a happy, healthy gut with your host, Rebecca Coombs. Welcome to episode 12 of the Healthy Gut Podcast and Happy New Year to you as well. Today, we're joined by Dr. Michael Ruscio, who is a doctor, researcher, author and health enthusiast. He practices functional medicine with a focus on natural and nutritional solutions and he's the host of the Dr. Ruscio Radio Podcast. Today, I talked to Dr. Ruscio about um, our gut health and sleep and why conditions like SIBO disrupt our sleep and also why we have a 50% chance of disordered sleeping stemming from the gut, even when there are no digestive symptoms present. We also talk about adrenal fatigue, what it is, what it feels like and what you can do about it because adrenal fatigue and SIBO often go hand in hand. So I hope you enjoy today's episode with Dr. Michael Ruscio, episode 12 of the Healthy Gut Podcast. Welcome to the Healthy Gut Podcast, Dr. Michael Ruscio. It's great to have you here today. Great to be here. Thanks for having me. And I, we got to, well, I got to see you at the SIBO Symposium in Portland in uh, June of 2016, and, and I really enjoyed your presentation there. And it's so great to be able to have you on the Healthy Gut Podcast so that we can talk more around gut health and how it impacts something that's so important to all, all of us, sleep, and also talking a little bit about adrenal fatigue today, which I'm really interested in. So it's going to be great to have you on the show. Looking forward to digging into some of the details. Yeah. Now I'd love to know like your story, how you came to be a doctor and why you have an interest in gut health. Well, I'll give you the, uh, the somewhat abridged version because it, it is a bit of a lengthy story, but um, it, it takes us all the way back to my college years where I knew I wanted to help people and I was kind of trying to figure out exactly what I wanted to do. I was pre-med. I, I wanted to go into conventional medicine. I was thinking maybe about going into orthopedics um, just because I was an athlete. Um, but in, in college, I, I went from being a you know an athlete that my whole life I had had boundless energy always felt great super optimistic super happy all the time everything was was great and then over the course of maybe a month or two I started having really bad insomnia waking up like every 30 minutes which was maddening uh having cravings I would 
and I still remember this because I was such a, I was so into health and, and eating healthy, but I'd wake up at four o'clock in the morning, unable to sleep and craving chocolate. And I'd get in my car and I'd drive to the local gas station and buy a candy bar. The whole time my inner dialogue is saying, what the heck are you doing? Why are you eating this junk food? You know, it's not good for you, but I, I couldn't override my cravings and I just, I would cave. Uh, and I also was having fatigue during the day. I was feeling cold for the first time in my life. Um, I was uh, having, again, a lot of fatigue and also mood dips. Um, and eventually I started having really bad reactive brain fog where I would eat something and, and just feel in a fog for at least a couple hours afterward. Um, I mean, I think that's most, <laughs> most of the symptoms. It's, it's a very unpleasant compendium there. Um, and you know, clearly I knew something was wrong. And so thinking to myself, well, I'll go see a doctor. I mean, this is what doctors are for, right? I figured, you know, I'll go see one. They'll tell me, oh, this is wrong. They'll fix it. I'll get right back with my life and, and it'll be no problem. And I ended up seeing three doctors and they all said, everything's normal. And so I found myself in that very challenging position. I think a lot of people find themselves, which is, you know, something is not right, but none of the doctors have anything that they've found wrong with you. And so I eventually found my way into the field of functional medicine and ended up seeing a functional medicine doctor that told me he thought I had a parasite. And I remember thinking to myself, this guy is, is full of BS. There, there's no way. I, I have no digestive symptoms. I've never been out of the country. I don't have the diarrhea one would associate with a parasite. But I figured I've got nothing to lose. So I'll, I'll do a stool test, which cost me $300, which to a college student feels like $10,000 because you're on such a tight budget. But did the stool test. We found a very pathogenic amoeba that was causing quite a bit of damage to my gut. And it was treating that infection that really got me better. And you know, th th there's another component to the story that I, that I should mention, which is before I found that doctor, I did a lot of reading on the internet and did a lot of self-diagnosis and self-treatment. I thought I had adrenal fatigue. I thought I had hypothyroid. I thought I had low testosterone. I thought I had mercury toxicity. And I pursued different self-treatment options, even some of these based upon lab testing where I had, quote unquote, high mercury in my urine and I performed months of detox but felt no better. I went on an adrenal support program, felt a little bit better for maybe a month, and then went right back to where I was before. So I wasted a lot of time and a lot of money pursuing symptoms rather than getting to the thing that ultimately was the only treatment that got me better, which was treating the underlying issue in the gut. And so I brought that experience forward with me into my clinic, and it's been interesting over the past several years where I've seen patients going through the same thing that I went through. They think they have adrenal fatigue. They think they have food allergies. They think they have heavy mental toxicity. And they end up doing all these different self-help treatments with very little effect. Sometimes something is effective, but a lot of people are floundering because they've overlooked an underlying problem in the gut. And the other thing that I think adds to this, and I, I'm sorry if I'm being a little bit long-winded, is there's so much information available on the internet now. People are paralyzed by options. And so I, I, you know, what I've tried to do with my work is really focus on the things 
that are the most effective. And what turned out to be most effective for me, which was treating a problem in the gut, turns out to be the most effective for the majority of patients. I wouldn't say every patient. It's not a panacea. It's not a guarantee. But certainly, if you're floundering with what to do and all these different options, starting off with a very good evaluation of your digestive health before you do anything else is a very safe play and a, and a good way to proceed. And so that's what I'm doing now in addition to performing some clinical research and writing a book trying to you know better this field of functional medicine to make the treatments more efficient and more cost-effective for patients. Mm, yeah, and I think that's really good advice to people who are listening to the podcast today uh, that quite often we can be very focused on perhaps the output rather than what the underlying cause is and starting at the, exactly. the core root of you know something like something so important to our health as the digestive system can uh, often be quite fruitful and I, I for myself as well I once I started to deal with my digestive health issues a whole myriad of other conditions improved, uh, conditions which I had been told I would just suffer forever. They were, um, you know, either it was a genetic uh, um, condition that had switched on or a reproductive disorder like endometriosis. And now that my gut is better, I almost don't experience any of those uh, other conditions at all because my gut health has improved so much. It is truly amazing the the power of the gut, and, and you know as you're saying that, it reminds me of one of my patients that I, I was reflecting on his case recently. He initially came to my office with a completely non-digestive related symptom, as you're saying, um, rheumatoid arthritis, joint pain essentially is what this manifests as, and he had also done some self testing and. He was positive for what's known as an MTHFR gene polymorphism. And you see and hear a lot about this on the internet. Um, and, and to be a bit frank and truthful, I think this has very little clinical utility because we don't really know how to treat it. And you'll, you'll see some, you know, I say this with all due respect and, and, and you know, not trying to offend anybody, but trying to give it to people straight, where we really don't know how to treat that finding. And so this is a finding that may, to put it loosely, impair detoxification. This gentleman came in thinking that this was the cause of his rheumatoid arthritis. Really, he ended up having SIBO. And when we treated his SIBO, his joint pain responded beautifully and went away um, within a few weeks. So it, it's a key point. There, there's a lot of stuff out there and it's easy to get distracted by a lot of these things. And and sometimes these things that I'm terming distractions may be legitimate things that people need to pursue. But if we can organize all of this into a hierarchy, it's going to make things a lot more efficient. And so I really think that the, the best place to start is with your digestive health, see that through to completion, and then reevaluate and see what symptoms are still left. In a lot of cases, most of the symptoms, if not all the symptoms, are gone by the time that you've improved someone's digestive health. Exactly. And I'm just, I'm smiling as you're talking about your patient with the rheumatoid arthritis, because I, prior to my SIBO diagnosis and, and uh, improving my gut health, I was starting to feel quite concerned that I was developing arthritis. And I would, I have, I've broken several fingers and I played a lot of netball and, um, 
and I would notice that my fingers would get very stiff and sore and achy and I was getting quite a lot of lumps in them. But since my uh, SIBO has been treated and, and I have been able to get rid of SIBO and I've worked on healing my leaky gut, I don't have that I don't have it at all. It's not even like it's just been diminished. I just don't have it. And and, uh, I would never have connected the pains and aches in my fingers and joints to my gut. It it really is um, amazing again. And it reminds me of a study, actually a study that this patient brought to me months and months after we had started working together. And this study showed that a SIBO treatment known as an elemental diet, which is a liquid diet, was actually as effective as the anti-inflammatory drug prednisone in treating rheumatoid arthritis. So here we have a you know, simple dietary solution that treats SIBO and was as powerful as this very strong anti-inflammatory drug. And I should just maybe mention for people listening, if you've heard of or look into the elemental diet, you may hear that there are these horrid tasting, you know, uh, meal replacement type shakes, and and so the the elemental diets or semi elemental diets are a form of treating SIBO, where one essentially does a short term, um, you know, fast on on this liquid. So it's like a kind of like a protein shake, and you just subsist on that from anywhere um, from days to even in severe cases to weeks, and you just you consume this meal replacement uh, liquid, and the Older versions did taste bad, but there's been some developments in elemental and semi-elemental diets over the past year or so where the ones available now are actually quite palatable. And so I just offer that for the person who is searching for another option. Maybe they've tried other SIBO treatment options and they haven't worked well. They then hear about an elemental or semi-elemental diet. They go read up on it. They see all these people commenting that I couldn't keep it down. It tasted terrible. It made me nauseous. True, but this is for some of the older versions. Again, there's been some newer versions that are now available that are quite palatable. I tried one of those newer versions at the SIBO symposium, and it was actually, uh, you know, it was actually fine. It was quite a pleasant taste, and and I thought, gosh, what are all these people talking about? Because that was the first time I'd ever tasted the elemental diet, and I thought, no, I could survive off this. I might get a bit bored of the flavour after, you know, a fourteen day period, for instance. But it was totally palatable, which was really good. I've learned to make that that qualifier because. A lot of my patients, when I first recommend the elemental diet to them, they're scared to death because they don't realize that there's newer versions available that, that don't taste that bad. Yeah, 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 definitely. I'd love for us to now talk a little bit about sleep. Sleep is, uh, you know, obviously something that we, you never hear someone say, gosh, I had, I had too much sleep last night. <laughs> We're always talking about not getting enough sleep. And I'd like to talk today around the impact of your gut health and how that influences our quality of sleep and how that can lead to, you know, disrupted sleep or even insomnia. So I'd love for you to talk a little bit about sleep and gut health. My pleasure. And I should maybe mention that um, there's some key components to sleep, which is if you sleep not enough, consistently not enough or consistently too much, both of those have both been correlated with poor health outcomes. And when when we went through we went through a very exhaustive review of all the 
published literature on sleep and how it correlates to different health conditions. And it's, it's very clear that if you're consistently getting less than seven or more than nine hours of sleep, that's correlated with things like increased risk for heart disease, diabetes, obesity, depression, or even what's called all-cause mortality, which is death from any cause. So it's not just that not enough sleep is a problem. Too much sleep can also be a problem. And this was surprising to me when I came across this. But I think the reason – this is me speculating now – but I think the reason why consistently getting more than nine hours of sleep has been shown to be a problem is those are probably people who are sick are not sleeping well and therefore have to sleep longer hours to try to get the same amount of sleep. And it's the fact that they're having a longer sleep but a poor quality that probably is why they have a, a um, you know, decreased overall health. So uh, I guess uh, – let me pause there for a second in case you have any questions on that specifically. I'm fascinated about that point that too much sleep can also be detrimental. I and I think I'm fascinated because I don't think I've ever had that issue. I fall into the other category of not enough sleep. I'm the eternal night owl and forever awake. And I often laugh and say, you know, if I could never sleep, that would be brilliant because I could get so much more done. I find sleep <laughs> quite boring at times, <laughs> which is not good. And it's been one of my focuses on getting well again is really working on getting more sleep um, every night. Um but I'm I am so interested by that, and I'm sure the listeners will be as well. Um, and I do wonder, you know, and I and I guess I'm just kind of putting this wonder out there to the general world, and I don't know if you have the answer to it, but whether people with gut issues are more likely to experience le- like not enough sleep, or yes. whether they fall into that oversleeping category. Well, both, um, and, and so let's let's define some parameters for for healthy sleep. The the duration is important, meaning how many hours. We just covered that, seven to nine. That's the duration that one should be shooting for. The intensity of sleep is also important because if you're waking up every 45 minutes, then that's poor sleep intensity. And then the rhythm or, or the, the timing of sleep is also important. For example, night shift workers have been, to show, have been shown to have an increased risk of death from any cause and other metabolic conditions like diabetes, obesity, and and what have you. So it's not just the duration of seven to nine hours, but it's also how soundly you sleep or the the intensity, and it's also the rhythm of your sleep. And it's important to try to have your day-night or your your sleep-wake cycles oscillate with the day-night rhythm, meaning you should be sleeping at nighttime and you should be awake during the day. So all three of these components are important, but to your question, yes, people that have, and this has been published in the medical literature, well documented, that people that have gastrointestinal conditions, especially gastrointestinal inflammation, have been shown to have things like insomnia, and that might manifest as as a hard time falling asleep, a hard time staying asleep, or both, and that's exactly what I had. Um, and what was paradoxical to me was that I didn't have – it wasn't like I was waking up and grabbing my abdomen in pain, right? That would be very obvious. I had no digestive symptoms, yet my insomnia was hellacious. And the reason for this is because you can have inflammation in the gut that doesn't necessarily cause you to wince in pain, but it's enough to cause an internal you know, pain response 
that inhibits your ability to sleep well. And so, yes, one of the more common symptoms that I see improve when we improve someone's gut health is their ability to fall and to stay asleep. Mm, That's very interesting. And I'm thinking back to my gut and the impact that it used to have on my sleep. And the most, I think the most common thing that I experienced was if I had eaten something for dinner and it had, had left me feeling particularly bloated or, or gassy, and I had very visible bloating, I looked pregnant, um, I just could not get a good night's sleep. I just felt, you know, internally I felt like everything was was all over the place and I would notice that on those nights particularly I would sleep really poorly with a lot of awake periods during the night, a lot of restlessness, inability to fall into I guess a solid or a deep sleep, um, often up and down to the toilet a lot and that's really improved for me. I I sleep soundly through the night as a general rule now, which is good. Um, what's the process for the you know for it to actually lead to poor sleep? Well, I don't know if if we if there's one pathway, and, and if we definitively can even say it, it's one pathway can you know compared to another. But there are there are some things that are certainly very probable in in being a cause of, of the poor sleep associated with digestive inflammation or imbalances or, or what have you. Um, probably the most fundamental is how this causes the body to be in a, a chronic stress response, right? And there's, there's many different terms that can be used in this regard, but just to put it simply, when you have inflammation or leaky gut or SIBO, you know, all these things kind of manifest together. So I think it's important for the listeners not to get overly wrapped up in the diagnosis of, of you know what mechanistically is happening. But when you have problems in the gut, to put it simply, this creates stress in your body. And when your body is under too much stress, it throws off your stress hormone rhythm. And the stress hormone rhythm is such that we should have more stress hormones released during the day and then little stress hormones released at night. But if you were to think about perhaps you had a period of your life where you were under intense stress, let's say you were going through a breakup or you got fired from your job or there was some other you know, emotional trauma. If we think back, most of us can probably remember a time where we were under immense physiological or, or psychological emotional stress and we probably noticed we weren't sleeping well. This is because stress can throw off your stress hormones and impede your ability to sleep well at night. And typically what this, what this can look like is, is an alteration of what's known as the HPA access, which again I think is getting far too mechanistic for, you know, than what's practical. But this is the, the access between your brain and essentially your, your adrenal glands. And this can cause someone to have elevated levels of stress hormones at night. Um, so it, it can be that you have too much for example, adrenaline in your system at two o'clock in the morning, then you should. And when you have a lot of adrenaline in your system, it causes you, it wakes you up. And this is why some people feel like they have this racing mind at night. They wake up at two o'clock in the morning and they're thinking about all the stuff that they have to do the next day. Um, and they can't shut their mind off. And it's really the hormones that are driving that. Now, you can test the hormones, but again, 
that doesn't tell you how to fix the problem, which is why I like the kind of gut first philosophy that I've been crafting throughout this call, um, which is focus on the gut and then the things that happen secondary to the gut can get better. But back to your question and to answer it more directly, one of the primary mechanisms or probably the primary mechanism is how the chronic stress and or inflammation that's caused by a gut problem can throw off your stress hormones and then that interferes with your ability to sleep. Mm. I'm sure there's people listening uh, to this podcast who are thinking, oh gosh, I I suffer from poor sleep or insomnia, but I didn't know I might have had a gut issue. What's the, is there a, a, a connection or a statistic in terms of if you're, if you're experiencing insomnia or or disrupted sleep, the likelihood of you having a gut issue? Mm, God, that's a great question. Uh, and I should know this because uh, I'm, I'm writing a book at the moment and we, we go pretty in depth into the section on sleep and we talk about a few studies that, that correlate inflammatory bowel disease and IBS, irritable bowel syndrome, and, and much of IBS may be caused by SIBO. We talk about how this or these groups of patients have an increased uh, risk for insomnia. But off the top of my head, I can't recall, and it may be that the researchers never provided a percentage, uh, but I, I don't have a percentage in terms of it's 30% or 50% or 60% um, according to what's been published in, in the medical literature. But what I can say is that in the clinic, the vast majority of patients that come in with sleep disturbances get better. And the, the important thing to keep in mind there is that they don't all have digestive symptoms, but many of them tend to do better when we go through things to improve their digestive health. Because remember, not every digestive condition manifests as digestive symptoms. So in terms of an exact percentage, I'm not sure, but certainly many patients, when improving their gut health, see their sleep improve. Now, there's some other things to be cognizant of here also. Um, something that can also happen that can contribute to insomnia is low blood sugar at night, what's known as nocturnal hypoglycemia. And a simple solution to this can be twofold. Uh, well, f most foundationally, you have to figure out and ameliorate whatever the source of chronic stress on your body is because chronic stress is something that can cause habitual low blood sugar. But eating frequent meals can help with that immensely. Different adrenal supports can also help because the adrenal glands regulate blood sugar. And then something practical people can do is when they wake up at night, they can try having a snack because if they're waking up because of low blood sugar, then eating something will increase your blood sugar and will help you get back to sleep. So that doesn't work for everyone, but it's certainly something that's worth trying. Something else that's worth noting is that if you're a woman, and especially if you're getting near your menopausal, perimenopausal years, and you're having hot flashes at night, then you'll want to seek some work that can help to balance your hormones. And there are many herbs that work very well to help balance out female hormones, and there's also bioidentical hormones that can help to balance out hormones. So if someone's having hot flashes, of course, then they may want to look um, into some hormone options, but let's not forget the fact that the gut has an impact on pretty much every system of the body, and it's not abnormal to see a woman's female hormones 
improve, the, the levels improve, the balance improve once we heal the gut. And this has a, many reasons for it, one of which is stress, because chronic stress can throw off hormones. Another is inflammation, because inflammation can throw off hormone levels. And thirdly, in the gut itself, there are bacteria that are responsible for metabolism and detoxification of female hormones. And when there's gut dysbiosis or imbalances in those bacteria, it can throw those things off as well. So, um, you know, there's a few different things there with sleep. Um, I know I didn't give you a great answer to the percentage question, but hopefully there's some helpful tips for people in terms of how to improve their sleep. Definitely. And what would your advice be to someone listening to the podcast who thinks that's me, I've, I've got disordered sleeping or insomnia? What, what would be some practical or easy tips uh, for you uh, to give them on what they could do today? Sure. Well, we went through a couple of them already. Eat small, frequent meals. Have a snack when you wake up at night. Uh, see if that helps. And if it, if it is that nocturnal hypoglycemia, that low blood sugar at night, then having a snack should help with that. And if you try it a few times and it helps, great. If it doesn't help, it's probably something else. Um, some adrenal supports can be helpful. And there, there's a number of things out there that can be helpful. You can just do an internet search for it and... and uh, I'm not overly meticulous about adrenal support. I think it's an area that's been a bit overhyped, to be honest. But just try an adrenal support or try a couple different ones. And if you notice an improvement in your sleep from that, then that means the adrenals were probably implicated. Um, and investigate any sources of stress. These could be simple things like not having enough downtime, having some sort of emotional or life stressor that needs to be remedied. Uh, and then it could also be internal stress. And the most common source of internal stress is someone's gut. So there are some simple things one can do to start down the path of improving their gut health. I'm sure you've talked about many diets. There's the paleo diet. There's a low FODMAP diet. There's an autoimmune paleo diet. There's the SCD diet. There's a low FODMAP with SCD combination diet. Uh, all those can be helpful for sleep. Uh, and people can try over-the-counter natural agents that can help them get to sleep while their body is repairing, like melatonin is a sleep aid that can be very helpful for helping people to get to sleep. Um, so, I mean, those are some of the more common things that that can be helpful and, and simple tips for, for sleep. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. And the other thing that I'd like to to talk around is the time that you go to bed. So you talked about uh, trying to aim f to be awake and asleep in the, I guess, in the right cycles of the day in daylight and then asleep in uh, nighttime. Is the time that you literally fall asleep important? So if you're still getting somewhere between seven and nine hours sleep, but you're getting to bed at, say, 9.30 at night versus 12.30 at night, does that have an impact on the um, quality of sleep? It does have an impact. And the question is, going to bed at 10 o'clock compared to 12 o'clock, 
you know, does that make a big difference in my mind? And this is more so my opinion than what we've seen published in the literature. In my mind, that type of difference, probably not a big deal. As long as you're getting to bed somewhere between 9 and 11-ish for, for most of the nights, you're probably okay. 12 might be pushing it a little bit. Is it going to have a huge impact on your health? In my opinion, probably not. But if you're going to bed at 4, 5, 6 o'clock in the morning or later, then that's when we're getting into a problem where your sleep rhythm is going to be pretty different from the day-night rhythm. And that's really what becomes a problem. And a lot of this comes down to the fact that light stimulates things in our brain and hormones in our brain that are important for repair. And so we think the main mechanism for which why not sleeping at night and being awake during the day is problematic is that you need that exposure to light during the day to tell your body to go into day mode and you need the darkness at night to tell your body to go into night and repair mode. And when you're awake during night and asleep during the day, you don't get that opportunity and it throws off these hormones in your brain and throughout the rest of your body. And this is likely why we see, for example, some literature showing that night shift workers have an increased risk of breast cancer, probably because of the cascade of events that ensues when you don't honor that rhythm. So I would try to get to bed between 9 and 11. You have a little bit of leeway from there and you're probably going to be okay. But if you're someone who's working a shift, like a night shift, then I would say it would behoove you to try to change that as soon as you can to a more reasonable um, shift so as to not be awake at uh, night and sleeping during the day. Mm, interesting. Um, another thing that that you've touched on a few times is adrenal fatigue. And, you know, I hear, I read things about adrenal fatigue. I see blog posts and, you know, things on social media all the time, it seems. And I, I feel like adrenal fatigue has become the new kind of hot topic to talk about. Um, I'd, I'd really like us to talk about what it actually is and, you know, what are the symptoms and, and obviously its relation to the gut. Sure. And, and I'll, I'll probably have a different position on this than a lot of what people will read on the internet. But I think adrenal fatigue is one of the more popular issues that you hear about out there in, in you know, online healthcare land, but probably one of the more useless topics because the adrenal glands never malfunction unless something causes that malfunction. So it's truly one of the most primary symptoms that people chase down, but it's never really the cause of anything. Um, and the, the adrenal glands, more specifically, are two hormonal glands that are located on top of your kidneys. And they produce a number of hormones like cortisol, a stress hormone, adrenaline. They produce pregnenolone and DHEA and estrogen and, and testosterone and aldosterone, which, is, uh, which regulates uh, blood pressure amongst other, or, or sodium retention amongst other things. So the, the main tie that people probably hear about the adrenals in regards to is the stress hormone of cortisol and how imbalances in that hormone can cause problems like fatigue, insomnia, weight gain, 
depression, lack of ability to focus. Um, you know, there, there's many symptoms. Those, those are all fairly common symptoms that most people are probably experiencing at least one or two or three of. And so it's easy to see how alluring the concept of adrenal fatigue is. And again, in my opinion, but wanting to give it to people straight to prevent them from spending money on, on things that are not the cause of their problems, the adrenal tests and the adrenal treatments aren't doing anything to treat the cause of the problem. Adrenal support is a great idea because you can support this system that's been stressed out because of chronic bad diet or not sleeping enough or chronic inflammation in the gut or what have you. Great to support the adrenals and, and there are herbs like ginseng and rhodiola that can help with your energy and, and help give you a boost. But the problem is, is that if you go on an adrenal support but you don't fix the cause of the adrenal stress, which is oftentimes the gut, then as soon as you come off the adrenal support, you go right back to feeling the way you did before. And a test is not really, again, in my opinion, needed just to help help people. It's not really needed to guide the adrenal support. Most of the studies looking at these herbs, for example, that are used for um, adrenal fatigue, most of the studies show that these herbs have effect and they, they do help with things like energy and vitality and, and what have you, but they're never guided by testing. And so this is important because if someone has to spend $150 on an adrenal test and they go on an adrenal program and then they test again two months later and then again two months later, someone could very easily spend $500 on adrenal testing, but it's it's not telling you anything about what's causing the problem. So um, I have a different position on that than many do, but I think the the tide is starting to shift where we're starting to realize that this is a very alluring idea, but as we're learning more about it, we're starting to realize that the adrenals are are not the cause of the stress and that trying to blame everything on adrenal fatigue is a very misguided approach. The adrenals only malfunction because of chronic stress in the body. And so we have to find and identify and resolve that source of chronic stress. So the adrenals are never the cause of, with, with rare, rare exception when someone has an adrenal disease, which is like one in a thousand. The adrenals are never really the cause of the problem. They're rather a symptom of the problem. So um, I'm not sure if that's the <laughs> answer you are looking for, but I think that's a very important point for people to be aware of because it's very easy to get sucked into this concept on the internet and and you know invest in things that aren't very fruitful. I think it's really great advice, and I you know I do feel you know saddened to see a lot of people chasing their um, their symptoms rather than addressing the underlying cause of what's happening to to get them sick. So I think it's really great advice what you're giving the listeners uh, today around you know you really need to be your own private investigator to look beyond the symptoms to see what's causing those symptoms to play out. What's what's uh, how would you go about uncovering what is causing that chronic stress in the body to have potentially led to adrenal fatigue? Well, um, I think we've already given some hints as to the answer to that question throughout the body of this call. Um, but starting with dietary and lifestyle basics are the foundation. So. Make sure you're eating a healthy diet. Make sure you're eating regular meals, getting exercise, getting sleep. You're having, you're having some time for yourself. You don't have a life that's incredibly stressful and, and imbalanced and, and just you know creating psychological havoc for you. 
you know, these are really the foundational things. If someone hasn't seen and tended to all of those, then start there. The second step to get, you know, more into a system of the body, so to speak, would be investigating and optimizing your digestive health. And, you know, there's not a two or three sentence answer to that question. Um, I think that's what a lot of your your podcast is going to be about. But there are many things in the digestive tract that can be a problem. There's IBS and there's SIBO, which is very closely associated with IBS. There's fungal overgrowths like CFO or small intestinal fungal overgrowth or Candida and H. pylori. Uh, you know, there, there's these bacterial and fungal imbalances that can occur. Uh, those are fairly common. There are also things that are less common but important to be aware of, more like parasites. These are things like what I had, again, more rare, but things like amoebas and protozoas um, and worms. You know, Again, be careful with worms because you, you can find some circles on the internet where worms are blamed for everything and they're this chronic thing you can never get rid of. But to be truthful, worms are very easy to treat um, and they're, they're not these things that are this mystery cause of your illness that you can never identify. Worms are pretty easy to address. Uh, so there's, there's bacteria, fungus, and other organisms that can be a problem. And there's also inflammation and autoimmunity. And this will manifest as inflammatory bowel disease, which has subcomponents to it. Most typically, ulcerative colitis and Crohn's, but there are other types. And these can also be remedied by the good dietary and lifestyle foundations like we've talked about, as can SIBO and IBS. But there are some unique treatments that are specific to SIBO and IBS. There are some unique treatments that are specific to inflammatory bowel disease. Um, Those are probably some of the more common ones. There are less common ones like motility disorders uh, where people don't have proper contractility of of the stomach or the esophagus or the colon. There are things like ulcers. Um, there are deficiencies in things like hydrochloric acid and enzymes that, that are important to uh, account for. So, I mean, those are those are some of the the bigger items. Um, and and do you mind if I refer back to my website? Because there's some resources there that I think would be helpful for people. But I I'm not sure if that's something that you allow on the podcast. Nope, that's absolutely okay. fine. I'm happy to do that. Okay, so th- there's there's a lot of information on these different disorders on my website, um, and people can use the search box there, and they can search for different terms. Um, but one of the things there that that will be coming, uh, you know, hopefully in March, is is my book that will take all this stuff, and we organize it into a series of steps that are personalized, and you know this. This, I think, is the real important part of the whole health action plan because you can go and find protocols all over the internet. But the the thing that is important to determine success or failure is, is the right person using the right protocol at the right time and in the right sequence. And that's what I've worked very hard with putting together the book and in the sequence of personalized action steps in the book is it takes all this stuff like should I be low FODMAP, should I be gluten-free, should I be paleo, should I be using probiotics, should I not be using probiotics, should I be treating for SIBO, should I not be treating for SIBO, do I need um, hydrochloric acid, do I not need it, might I have an ulcer, might I not have an ulcer, might I have inflammatory bowel disease, might I not, should I try an elemental diet, should I try fasting, should I try adrenal support, should I try vitamin D, <laughs> there's, there's so many things and you have to have a method for working through these. 
If you don't, you end up doing what I did and what most of my patients have done, or I shouldn't say most, but many of my patients have done before they come to see me, which is just trying whatever it is you're learning about at the time, right? You're learning about adrenals because you're reading up on it. And so you try an adrenal program and then you go learn about the FODMAP diet. And so you try that, but there's, there's no overarching process guiding it. And, and I think that's, that's really the, the difference between knowledge and wisdom. You can get knowledge on Google in seconds. You can look up a protocol and try it. But, but wisdom is when you've been using protocols for years and years and years, and you've come to understand the best way to apply those protocols. Um, so, you know, I, I'm, I'm very hopeful that the book will help people. Uh, and I hope that it doesn't sound too self-promotional, but what I've learned is that people really need a way of applying these thousand and one things they could potentially do. And you can't really do that justice in an interview because you have to be able to personalize a recommendation. And what I mean by that is some people may only need to take two steps in this process and then they feel great. So they're done. But other people may need to go through seven steps. And so you have to have this this kind of personalized process. Try this. How did it go? If it went well, move to step two. If it didn't move well, move to step three. Right. And this this sort of personalized process can help you navigate all the options and apply them in the most efficient manner. So again, I, I apologize if that's a long uh, rant in response to you know promoting something that I put together, but I really think it, it has the potential to be one of the most efficient methods for a patient to recover their health rather than just trying a bunch of stuff in a haphazard fashion. I, I think of my own journey and I am exactly like what you described. I, you know, when I first got my SIBO diagnosis, I'd never heard of it. I didn't even really know that much about the digestive system, which is kind of embarrassing to admit to, but, you know, I knew food went in and it came out, but what happened inside, I wasn't a hundred percent clear on. And, you know, I jumped into uh, online forums and Facebook groups and someone would post a, something about a topic and I'd be like, oh, that could be me. Maybe that's what I've got and I'd go down the rabbit hole of reading every post and article and blog and everything I could find on the internet about that and then I'd think that sounds like me that could definitely be me and I'd go to my naturopath and say I've been reading about blah 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 and I think this could be (laughs) what I suffer from and I think that's so common um especially when you don't have a healthcare team around you sort of supporting you and you're and you're doing it a lot of it on your own which sadly seems to be the case with a lot of people that they haven't found the support that they need or the right kind of practitioner for them for themselves at this point in their journey so they feel the that they need to, the burden the um the process on their own and and so they do do a lot on their own and whether it's right or wrong. Um, so I think that the, that your book sounds like a fantastic resource for people uh, as they're going through their journey. And hopefully it will answer a lot of questions that people have around what should I do next. Well, thank you. And yes, that, and that's, that's exactly my goal with the book. It was not to be some you know, very interesting read that, that gave you a lot of cool facts, but never gave you a plan. You know, we, we cover a lot about the book and we, we learn a lot about the gut um, and different treatments for the gut and the history of the gut and, and how the modern environment's throwing off your gut and, you know, all these things that are very important part of understanding it. But then the last section of the book, again, it takes all this stuff and it says, okay, well, what do we do? <laughs> right? And so that's, that's the thing I think people are struggling with. There, there's no shortage of information out there. 
And that's what's great about the modern information age. We have so much information at our fingertips, but we have to know how to apply it. You know, I, I often think of it like a financial advisor. You could have a financial advisor that's read every book out there, but unless they've spent time actually advising people or, or investing their own money and actually doing it, they're not going to be able to get a really good result. And so if you've just spent time reading about different stuff on the internet, different healthcare interventions, but you haven't spent time actually using them on people and figuring out who they work best for and, and at what time, then it's really, really hard to be efficient in the application. So uh, thank you. I'm, I'm very hopeful that this will be the answer that a lot of people are looking for because it essentially walks them through, you know, uh, this, this process. So my, I'm very optimistic. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I look forward to reading it. And uh, in terms of the adrenals, uh, what are the, what are the sort of other common issues that you find that people have, you know, is there a common link between say issues with your adrenals? Obviously gut health is, is a big one um, and chronic stress, but what about with uh, con- a connection with the thyroid as well? Mm-hmm. There, there is a very interesting uh, and multifaceted adrenal thyroid connection, and you know, they, they, they both have to be in balance for the system to work correctly. Right? You can't have adrenal levels that are high or low and expect your thyroid to function properly, and you can't have thyroid levels that are high or low and expect your adrenals to function properly. So, like, like anything else in, in biology, the key is balance, right? And, and so, um, the Adrenals, when high or low, can throw off the conversion of thyroid hormone and in the actual production of thyroid hormone. And then thyroid hormone actually sensitizes some of the receptors to adrenal hormones. So there's this very intimate relationship between the two. To give people some more practical answers in, in, you know, in terms of what you can do, here's a few common things that happen. If people have adrenal fatigue – and I really don't like that term because what it really means is the body's been under prolonged stress and they're not able to you know, produce an adequate amount of these hormones because of it. But I'll use the term for simplicity's sake. If someone has adrenal fatigue and then they go on a thyroid hormone, that can actually make their adrenal fatigue worse. And what you'll see here is people who go on a thyroid hormone, they feel no difference or they even feel worse. And here's how this works. Uh, so if you have adrenal fatigue, you already don't have enough adrenal hormones in your system. When you take thyroid hormone, thyroid hormone speeds up your metabolism. And what it can do is it can speed up your metabolism of your adrenal hormones. So now you go from having low hormones, you increase their metabolism, and you have even lower hormones. So that's one uh, application. And, and uh, let me pause there. D- does that make sense? That makes sense. That's, that's quite insightful, actually. I'm having a real aha moment. <laughs> <laughs> and now the, the converse can also be true, which is if someone is hypothyroid they, and they don't know it, they may go on every adrenal support known to man and still not really feel any better 
because it's actually the hypothyroid that's driving their problem. Now, hypothyroid is also an area to be very careful with because there's definitely some fanaticism around hypothyroid where, where people are way overzealous with trying to treat the thyroid gland. Um, and you know, getting into the thyroid is, is a little bit beyond the scope of this call, but what I would say is if you're going to work with someone on your thyroid, make sure that they're not a fanatic. And you just want to look for people that seem to be conservative in their approach um, and, and they don't seem to be you know, aggressive or overly opinionated because usually the more opinionated someone is, in my opinion, the less they know. Because you, you, the more you learn, the more you learn you don't know and the more open-minded you tend to be. So if someone is very hard-driving or dogmatic, it probably means they don't know a lot. And you know, Saying that respectfully, but just, again, trying to cut through the BS and give people some things that are practical and helpful. So be careful with who you work with regarding thyroid because there's a lot of overzealousness. But if you, if you are truly hypothyroid, then you're going to most likely need some thyroid hormone replacement. And that may be the solution to what looks like adrenal fatigue but never responds to any adrenal support because the problem is not the adrenals, it's, it's the thyroid. So, you know, th- those are a few of the more kind of salient or relevant points regarding, uh, you know, to your, your initial question, which was the adrenals, but kind of how they also tie in with the thyroid and, and things for people to be aware of. Mm, and I I can now see just how interlinked uh, every system is. So that if you're if you're currently dealing with SIBO, that that obviously can put enormous pressure on the system, which can lead to other things occurring, such as adrenal fatigue. But until you've dealt with the underlying cause, which is SIBO, let's say. Uh, there's not much you can do about your adrenal fatigue, as I understand it. So yeah. I think that's yeah. And, and the thyroid, a, a lot of a lot of what looks like hypothyroidism actually comes from problems in the gut. And we can make this conversation more complicated and convoluted if we need to. And we can talk about how things like gut inflammation will decrease the conversion of T4 to T3 or increase what's known as reverse T3. You know, but you know, ultimately, keep, let's keep it simple and just realize that. Before you chase down these other things, just start with your gut, see that through to completion, and then reevaluate. I've spent years having my thyroid checked and it always came back absolutely fine. But doctors, and this was before I found my naturopath, but uh, doctors, general practitioners would say, "Mm, I think there might be an issue with your thyroid. Now, I understand that it was my gut that was the issue. It wasn't my thyroid. Uh, But for such a long time, they looked at my thyroid. And I just think, God, if only they'd known more about the gut and known about SIBO and instead of pricking me with millions of needles and taking unnecessary blood tests, we might have got to that point and, and got me healthier a long time ago. Yeah. Well, I, I was the same way. I, yeah. I, I thought I had hypothyroid too when I was, you know, cause I had thinning hair, dry skin, and I was feeling cold. All those are bullseyes for hypothyroid. But, you know, again, the, the cause in my case and in, and in many cases isn't actually the thyroid. It's, it's the gut. And, and at least it's, it's good practice to start with the gut and, again, then reevaluate. It's not to say the gut's a panacea, but the gut problems are so common that it's really the most efficient path to start there and then reevaluate what symptoms are still present. 
Mm, definitely. Dr. Michael Ruscio, it's been absolutely wonderful having you on the Healthy Gut Podcast today. I've learned a lot and I'm sure my listeners have too. If people would like to connect with you, what's the best place for them to go to to, to connect with you? Well, thank you. And, and the best place is my website, which is drruscio.com, which is spelled D-R-R-U-S-C-I-O.com. And there's much information there, uh, newsletters, articles, podcasts, videos. And then regarding the book that we mentioned earlier, the anticipated publication date for that is going to be March 2017. Uh, we're currently working on a title, so I, I don't have a title I can tell you now. Um, but uh, if you you know follow my website or plug into our newsletter, we will definitely put out ample notification there. And then also, if you're a healthcare practitioner, we are just in the process of, of launching a healthcare practitioner only newsletter that will be more of kind of the clinical side of this, you know, how to efficiently apply functional medicine and, and not get wrapped into dogma or excess. And that information will also be available through just going through our homepage, which is drrusho.com. Wonderful. And I've got all of those links in the show notes as well. Thank you so much for coming on to the Healthy Gut Podcast. It's been an absolute pleasure to have you on the show today. My pleasure. Thank you again for having me. I hope you enjoyed today's show with Dr. Michael Ruscio. If you would like to access the show notes or even the full transcription of today's show, all you need to do is head to thehealthygut.co forward slash Michael. And I absolutely love hearing your feedback on the show. It really helps me determine what episodes to create and what specialists to interview for future episodes. So don't hesitate to give us a rating and review in either iTunes or the podcast app that you listen to this show through. You can also follow us on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, YouTube, Pinterest and Google+. Just look for us under The Healthy Gut. Coming up on next week's show, which is episode 13, we speak with George Klingen, who is a long-time SIBO sufferer. And George talks to us about his own personal experience with SIBO, what he's learnt and how he has overcome this condition to live a much more positive and fulfilled and healthy life than where he's come from. And he also talks about Simply SIBO, a foundation that he has set up to support the lives and the research of people with SIBO. So don't miss that episode coming up next Tuesday with George Klingen. You've been listening to the Healthy Gut Podcast with Rebecca Coombs. To learn more about the Healthy Gut or the podcast, head to thehealthygut.co forward slash podcast. If you would like to help support the continuation of this podcast, you can make a contribution at thehealthygut.co forward slash podcast. With thanks to Belinda Coombs for the production, editing and original music score of this podcast. To hear more of Belinda's music, head to soundcloud.com forward slash Belinda Coombs. The Healthy Gut Podcast is a production of The Healthy Gut. Thanks for listening. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. 
Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.